0: Today, John continues his series on the book of Revelation with his message, It Pays to Serve God. If you'll open your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 11, you talk about a storm. We are now in the middle of the Great Tribulation, or at least our study of it. We're in the middle of the Great Tribulation. The world is coming apart at the seams. Nature itself is coming unraveled, and in the midst of this storm, God has his people. God has his witnesses, his representatives on the scene to communicate his message to the people who will be living at this time. Now, let's just pick up in Revelation chapter 11 and in verse number 1. John is having this vision, and he said, Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod. And the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. Now, what is this? Well... Remember, at the beginning of the tribulation period, the Antichrist is going to make a covenant of peace with the civilized world. And as part of that peace deal, he's going to promise Israel that he will protect their borders, that they can rebuild the temple there in Jerusalem and to begin to resume sacrificing animals to God. And so at this point in the tribulation, that's exactly what is happening. The temple has been rebuilt people are going in and worshiping God. It's unclear whether this is Jewish worship or whether these are Jews who have become Christians, and now they're worshiping God as Christ followers, but nonetheless, they are worshiping God, and God from heaven looks down, and he takes note, and he says to John, he said, I want you to measure the temple, the altar, and those who worship there, but those who are outside the inner part of this temple... He said, don't measure them, leave them out. And it says to me that God makes a distinction between those who are truly worshiping him and those who are not. And in verse number three, we read about two witnesses, two prophets of God that emerge at this time. And God said, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, In verse 2, we read about 42 months, and in verse 3, we read about 1,260 days. If you add that up, it comes up, both of those are a different way of saying three and a half years. And so what the Bible is saying here is that during the tribulation... Two witnesses from God are going to emerge on the scene, and for three and a half years, they are going to prophesy. They're going to tell people how to be saved. They're telling people that Jesus Christ is the only way out of this terrible mess that they're in now. Now, it's not 100% clear if the two witnesses rise up. Some scholars say they believe at the midpoint of the tribulation, after the tribulation has been going on for three and a half years, that these two witnesses emerge, and that for the remaining three and a half years of the tribulation, they witness. Most others say that they believe it is at the beginning of the tribulation when these two witnesses rise, and for the first three and a half years they emerge, and that's what I think it is. I think what's happening here at the beginning of the tribulation, these two witnesses come on the scene, and for three and a half years, they witness, and they're telling people about Jesus Christ, and as we study this passage, it becomes clear why I believe it's that way, because we'll see that the Antichrist ultimately kills these two witnesses. But remember, it's not until the midpoint of the tribulation that the Antichrist breaks his covenant of peace himself goes into the temple in Jerusalem, takes the most holy place, and demands to be worshiped as God. So for the first three and a half years, nobody knows that the Antichrist is the Antichrist. They just think he's this smooth, suave, political negotiator of peace. But halfway through, he breaks the peace treaty, he goes into the temple, he says, I'm God, and he demands people to worship him. And if they don't worship him, he kills them. And I believe it is at this point that the Antichrist will kill these two witnesses. And so let's just read on. It says, these are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And so God describes these witnesses as olive trees and lampstands. What is this significance? Well, an olive tree, we think about the olive oil. We think about oil representing the Holy Spirit. I think part of what God is saying here, these two witnesses have the Holy Spirit of God own them. They're fruitful like an olive tree, and they're also like two lampstands. They're shining light in a dark and a, a, in a desperate world. And so what I want to do in this message today, as we think about these two witnesses, and by the way, you may be wondering, well, who are these two people? Are they named? Well, they're not named, but if you look in verse 6, we get a a hint or a clue of who they might be. It says, these have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. And they have power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. So these two witnesses sound a lot like Moses and Elijah. Moses had power to turn the water into the blood, and he had power to bring down the plagues on the Egyptians. And Elijah had power in his prayer to pray, and there was no rain for three and a half years. We read about that in the Old Testament. And so whether these two men are Moses and Elijah, come back to the earth... Whether they are two other prophets who are similar to Moses and Elijah, we don't know that for sure. But we know that these are two of God's chosen representatives on the earth at this time with a clear message to the people to repent, to return to God, to receive Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so these two men are God's servants at this point during the tribulation. And so as I was preparing the message, I just I can see that God, what is true of these two witnesses at least to some extent, is true for all of us who know God and who have a desire to serve God. Now, we serve God in different ways. I was thinking even last week about all the different ways that we serve God. When we pray, that's one way that we're serving God. When we sing these songs in church like this that we've done today, we're ministering to God. We're offering up our songs of worship, and so in that sense, we are serving God. Certainly, we serve God by serving each other. If I help you, I'm serving God in that sense. If you help me, the same thing. We we have different congregations. Right now, I'm attempting to serve God by teaching the Bible and preaching this sermon. But we all have different settings in different congregations. If you're a school teacher, your congregation is not a church like this. Your congregation is your classroom. Now, you can't teach exactly like I'm doing. You can't go into your class tomorrow if you're in a public school and have the kids to open their Bibles and and give them the highlights of Sunday's sermon, but you teach and you represent God in a different way by your love and by your compassion and by your being there to help those students. If you're a football coach, that team, th- those athletes, that is your congregation. And so you're serving God by ministering to them. If you're a parent, your congregation is, is your, to a large extent, would be your children as you're raising them up. I was thinking last week about Susanna Wesley, If that name doesn't ring a bell to you, she was the mother of John and Charles Wesley who went on to found the Methodist church. But according to one account, Susanna Wesley had 19 children. Now those of you who are parents, be glad that you don't have that large of a congregation. But she had 19 kids. And yet she viewed those kids as her congregation, as her responsibility to pour the love of God into them. And I was reading late last night that Susanna Wesley had 16 rules, 16 guidelines for raising children. And one of those guidelines was that when one of her kids got old enough to talk, she would teach that child to pray. And she believed that prayer was a very much important part of life but for her, her her congregation were those kids and and two of them founded a denomination that's still existing today. And so what I'm saying is what as we go through this and see what happened to these two witnesses, what is true of them is true of us. You have a different congregation than I do and you minister in a different way than I try to minister, but we all want to serve God in some way, just like these two witnesses did in their day. And so I want to give you four lessons that we can learn. First of all, a true servant of God, and that's what we all desire to be, a true servant of God is empowered by God, empowered by God. And again, we read that these two witnesses are like two olive trees or two lampstands. The point is that God is giving them the power that they need. Our power, as, as we try to serve God, our power doesn't come from within ourselves doesn't come from our intelligence, doesn't come from our natural abilities, doesn't come from our education, doesn't come from any of that. Our power comes from God. Let me give you a scripture verse to write down. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 5, the apostle Paul said, and I love this verse, he said, our gospel does not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. And so when we try to serve God, we don't want to just go through the motions. We want there to be power, and we want there to be the Holy Spirit, and we want there to be assurance in what we're doing that we're representing God. And so a true servant of God, first of all, is empowered by God. Now, the second thing that we think about as we think about these two witnesses, we think about all those who try to serve God, is that a true servant of God is protected by God. If the desire of your life is to serve God, Whatever your vocation may be, if you say, you know what, in this job, in this setting, I want to serve God. I want to be God's representative. You have the promise that God is going to protect you in a very special way. Now look in verse 5, how God protected these two witnesses. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. And so God had placed a hedge around Moses and Elijah or whoever these two prophets might be, and God had basically made it where those who wanted to do them harm could not get at them. They were protected by God, and if somebody tried to harm them, They would speak, fire would come out of their mouth, and the ones who tried to destroy them would in in themselves be destroyed. And that says to me that a true servant of God is immortal until his work is done. Uh, a, a true servant of God can't be killed, can't die, can't be destroyed until his work is done. God has a shield. God has a hedge of protection that is around us, and we're so very thankful like that. We're immortal until our work is done. And so, you know, as we go through life, we don't have to wonder, am I going to die too early? You're not going to die too early. You're not going to die too late. You're going to die when it's your time to die, and it won't be your time to die until God is finished with you. And so we have that promise. A third thing we see here is that a true servant of God can expect persecution. Now, we see this with the two witnesses because they were certainly persecuted. Look in verse number 7. When they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. Now, this word beast, this is the first time in Revelation that we read the word beast. It is the first of 36 references to the beast, and the beast is the Antichrist. And that's who is being talked about here. And so what it's saying is when these two witnesses, notice what it says in verse 7, when they finish their testimony... And so they had finished what God had sent them to do. They were immortal till that happened. Then the beast, comes; he ascends out of the bottomless pit, makes war against them, overcomes them, and kills them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. And so these two witnesses will be ministering in Jerusalem. And he's describing Jerusalem here as Sodom. It's telling you about the sin that will be happening in Jerusalem at this time. And also Egypt, talking about the rebellious spirit toward God that will happen. But it's in Jerusalem where these two prophets will minister, where they will be killed. And then look at the next verse. It said... Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And so out of an ultimate act of disrespect, the Antichrist will not allow these two witnesses to be buried. All, every culture in the world allows people to be buried. That is, a, that is just, a, just something you do just out of decency. But the Antichrist will so hate these two witnesses for the message that they have been preaching that he will not allow them to be buried. By this time, the Antichrist is in control on the earth. And for three and a half days, their bodies will be just laying out... They're in the streets of Jerusalem. And notice in verse 10 what the people will do. It says, "...those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry, and send gifts to one another, because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth." And so, they're going to, there's going to be such rejoicing when these two men are killed that it's going to be like a satanic Christmas. People are going to be giving gifts to each other, celebrating that these two prophets who had been prophesying and telling about Jesus, now their voices have been silenced. And it says back in verse 10, 9, very interesting, then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues, and nations will see their dead bodies for three and a half days. Now, when John wrote this, he had no way of knowing how that would be true. Because back in John's day, how could all the people from all the nations of the earth see these two bodies for three and a half days in the streets of Jerusalem? They would have had no way of seeing that. But in our day, it's not hard for us to imagine television, social media. it will be very easy for everybody who's living at this time to see these two prophets, their bodies dead in Jerusalem, and for three and a half days, that's where they are. And so it says to me, see, the first two points would make everybody want to ser- be a servant of God. If we, what, if, what did I say at the beginning? A servant of God is empowered by God, which says if we are serious about this, we say, God, I want to serve you with my life. God's going to fill us with the power of his Holy Spirit. Not only that, a true servant of God is protected by God. There's a hedge, a shield around us, and we're, we're immortal till our work is done. Man, that sounds good. Sign me up for that. But we come to this third lesson, and we see that a true servant of God can expect persecution. And we hear that, and we think, well, I'm not sure that I want to sign up for that. Let me give you a Scripture verse. In 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12, the Scripture says that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, you think about that verse, and you ask yourself, have you ever been persecuted for your faith in Jesus Christ? Well, whether you have or not, you have to think about that verse because it says all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. And so persecution in one shape or size, in one form or another, persecution is just part of the deal. And for some it's martyrdom, and for others it's ridicule, and for some it's, it, it could be no matter of what. But persecution is something that we can expect to face if we're serious about serving the Lord. Now I want to read you something I read last week about a, a Romanian pastor lived several years ago, whose name was Joseph Son, last name spelled T-S-O-N. And it says the communists tried to kill this Romanian pastor, Joseph Son, for preaching the word. They sent a man who said, Joseph, if you don't knuckle under, we're going to kill you. Joseph responded, before you kill me, I want to say that your chief weapon is killing, but my chief weapon is dying. They asked him what he meant. He responded, If you kill me, you will sprinkle every sermon I've ever preached with my own blood, every book I've ever written with my own blood, and people will know that I love the Lord enough to die for him. So your chief weapon is killing, but my chief weapon is dying. I want to warn you that if you use yours, I'll use mine they went away saying, leave Joseph alone. He's crazy. (laughs) And so they didn't kill him. But what was he saying? He was saying, listen, I know you're saying you're going to kill me if I don't give in to what you're telling me I have to give in to and stop serving God, but I'm telling you, I'm not going to stop serving God. I'm going to continue serving Him, and if you kill me, the blood that I will shed will make every sermon I've ever preached better, every book I've ever written better, and everybody who knows me or doesn't will say, that man loved Jesus Christ enough that he was willing to die for Him. And so that says to me that even in times of persecution, even in times when things turn against us. And even in times when people might even be trying to destroy our lives, that in those moments we have an opportunity to serve God that we never would have had without the persecution. And so opposition is really an opportunity to stay faithful to God and to serve Him. And so when you go through persecution, the first thing I would say is don't be surprised by that. That's just part of the deal. And I think sometimes those of us who want to serve God, we're a little bit naive and we just think, well, I don't live in China or North Korea or some of these places where they're killing Christians and I I live in the United States and I, I just don't really expect much persecution. Well, listen, your persecution may come in a different way than that Romanian pastor was faced with persecution. But I'm telling you this and God is telling us this, if you serve Him, you can expect persecution. It's not all going to be smooth sailing. The devil will try to oppose you stop you, discourage you, defeat you, drive you away, cause you to quit, make you bitter, make you doubt and question God, and silence your witness for Jesus Christ. And so what I'm saying is today, here we are on a Sunday morning, everybody in this room has a desire to serve God in one way or another. If you believe that, say amen. If you agree with we all do. Well so here we go. We're going to serve God. We want to do it in the power of the Spirit. We know we have a divine shield of protection around us, but we also know that persecution is part of the deal. And so when it comes, what do we do? Well, what, we supp- what we're supposed to do is to say, God, I wish this wouldn't have happened. I wish I wasn't experiencing this challenge, this difficulty right now, but it's part of it, and so I'm going to just keep on serving you, and I'm going to keep on moving forward as best I can. In 1 Corinthians chapter 16 and verse 9, Paul was talking about his own ministry, and he said, a great and effective door has opened to me, and there are many adversaries, Someone has said that the door of opportunity swings on the hinges of adversity. And Paul experienced it, and you probably have too, but it's just part of it. A true servant of God can expect persecution. So don't let it it bewilder you. Don't let it disillusion you. Expect it and just deal with it as best you can. And then the fourth lesson that I think is so good in this passage of Scripture is that a true servant of God at the right time, and that is the key, prepositional phrase right there, at the right time can expect to be honored. Now, look back in verse number 11 as we think about these two witnesses who have been killed and refused burial, and there their bodies are in Jerusalem, and people are celebrating their death. But look what happens in verse 11. God's going to get the last word. Now, after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them, and they stood on their feet, And great fear fell on those who saw them. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud. And their enemies saw them. And so these two witnesses now have been resurrected and raptured. Life has come back into their dead bodies, and now they've been called up to heaven to be with God. And in verse 13, it says, In the same hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell, a tenth of the city of Jerusalem. In the earthquake, 7,000 people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. And so what happened here? Well, it's pretty obvious what happened. God, after he had finished his work with these two witnesses, after their work was done, he allowed them to be killed. And at that moment, it looked like the Antichrist had gotten the last word on them, but he hadn't, because three and a half days later, God put life in their body, God resurrected them, and God raptured them, and he took them to heaven. And that says to me that a true servant of God, at the right time, will always be honored will always be vindicated, will always be proven that this really was my servant and that he uh, is being faithful or she is being faithful to what I've called them to do. Now, I want to give you a scripture verse to write down. There's one of my favorite verses in all the New Testament. It's in John chapter 12 and in verse number 26. And Jesus is talking about this whole idea of honor, how God will honor people who attempt to serve him in some way. John 12, 26, Jesus said, If anyone serves me, let him follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. Now here's a sentence I want you to see. If anyone serves me, him my Father will honor. We hope that today's message, It Pays to Serve God, has been a blessing to you. You can find this message, along with many others, on our website, www.peacebybelieving.org, under the Broadcast tab. While you are on the website, go to the Booklets tab. There you will find a booklet entitled, In the Twinkling of an Eye, that is a good companion piece to our study of the book of Revelation. Thank you for spending some time with us today, and we look forward to you joining us on the next Peace by Believing with John Redmond.